be with our team of workers in Transformation Station. We have a kid up through the fifth grade. Would you recommend back that way? And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter uh, 19 this morning. Luke chapter 19. If you're using one of the Bibles, we provide a free here in the row. So we page. What that picture means? Like, it's a team. Oh, oh, okay. Well, You're uh, right. Happy anniversary. Uh, my name is Dan. It's really nice to serve as a lead pastor of Hill. And uh, it, is, it is so uh, rewarding just to uh, step back and reflect on what God has done in our church. God's done I don't know about you, but on special occasions like an anniversary or, or maybe some other kind of like, important celebration, some milestone in your life, I feel like it's always a good time to kind of hit pause and on the one hand look back and reflect. This is what we've tried to do this morning. We're going to continue to do that about uh, how God has worked in the past. But we also want to look forward and consider how we want Him to continue to work uh, in our lives. What, what kind of brings the, the, those two uh, factors together? There's kind of a collision of, of core values, the essentials of, of what makes us who we are. And so this morning, as we dive into Luke 19, I think this is a great chapter, a great passage that will uh, help us kind of bring these two realities together. Um, what God has done in the past, but also where He is pushing us forward to as a church in the future. We consider what we want to continue to do in years four, five, six, seven, and, and as far as we can see. So to think about this, this idea of, of who we are, who we want to be at a church, um, I want us to consider this one life that we're going to see in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. This, this man's name was Zacchaeus. And as we look at Zacchaeus' life, we're going to see that there were some characteristics of how Jesus pursued him and how he focused in on his individual life that um, has some immense ramifications for us, I believe, at the church. You know, as we think back, as we kind of, you know, in these moments can be a little nostalgic, I think that's okay, right? You kind of think about, man, how, how God has worked, how far God has brought us. Um, I think about when we first moved here uh, to, to Greater Boston. One of our kind of core uh, philosophical underpinnings, one of our, one of our key principles was this. We said, we're going to move into the city, and we're going to focus on people, all right? Now, I know that kind of sounds obvious, right, as, as, as pastors, as, as those who are starting the church, but it's like, we really want to focus on individual people, because there's something that's just so uh, massive about coming to a city of five million people in our heart. Our hearts be like God's heart. God wants all five million people to hear and respond to the gospel. So we think that should be our mission to how can we give the gospel to five million people? And, and, and so God just said, Look, make sure you focus on people one person at a time. God places an infinite value on each person's soul that He has made. He loves them with a unique Love. And so we said, you know what, that's going to be our attitude as we come into the city. We're going to seek to love people as individuals, the 
cowards of one life. So what we've seen is over time, one life is changed by Christ. And then that life connects with another person and another person. I'm sure that, that many of you, most of you probably today, we even saw this last Sunday with Easter. We had a, a more first-time guests than we could even count. Seriously, we couldn't even get a, a firm number on how many new people we had uh, last Sunday. But we can tell you that most of those people came through a friend. They came through someone connecting them uh, to Christ and to our church. So what is the power of one life? There's a, a quote that has really been influential in many Christians' leaders' lives over the century, many Christians that says this, the world has yet to see what God can do with one life fully committed to him. I want you to think about that. The world has yet to see what God can do through one life that is fully committed to him. So as we look at this life in Zacchaeus, I want you to ask yourself, man, is my life fully given to God? Do I know God in this kind of way, the kind of way that Zacchaeus came to know him? 2 Chronicles 69 says, For the eyes of the Lord, Lord raise throughout the earth to strengthen those hearts who are fully committed to Him. So, so think about your one life. Think about this one life that God has given you. And I pray that this great reversal that Jesus lived and died and rose again to bring us will influence your one life for God. Let's read the first 10 verses of Luke 19, together, Paul says this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small and stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and came and received him joyfully. And when, he, when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This text invites us to receive the reversal Jesus brings and join him in his reversal mission. We're going to see as we work our way through this, this idea that, that first we have to receive the reversal that Jesus died and rose again to bring us, and then he invites us to be on this reversal mission that he has initiated. So what I want to do, I want to break the passage down into just a couple of sections, and I want to give you two primary encouragements this morning. Okay, the first is this. Uh, revel in the reversal, Jesus' mission, missionary. Okay? 
revelling in the reversal of Jesus' mission of grace. What, what I love about this story is that we find that Jesus seeks us, and he seeks us right where we are. Now think about this. We, we, we discover a couple of important facts about Zacchaeus in verse 2. Look back at it with me. It says, uh, number one, that he was a chief tax collector. So it was was bad enough in the, in the eyes of the public that Zacchaeus, this Jewish man, was a, a tax collector because that meant that he was working for the Romans, all right? But not only that, he was a chief tax collector. That means he probably had people under him who were working with him to not just collect people's taxes, but as we saw here in the story, the implication is that Zacchaeus was not just taking people's taxes, what they did of, he was actually deceiving them and taking more than they, they owed. That he was a, a thief, essentially. He was swindling and robbing people of their rightful possessions. And so, naturally, he became a rich man. And it's important for us to understand that in the chapter before this in Luke 18, Luke introduces us to a tax collector who humbled himself before God and a rich man wanted to hang on to his possessions. So basically what Luke is doing here, he's writing this orderly account he says in the opening verses, and he wants us to uh, get a grasp of just what Jesus' mission is and the kind of mission that he came to execute while on earth. And this, this story of Zacchaeus is a great uh, case study in what Christ can do for us. See, everyone would have been surprised. We might say they would have been shocked to find out that as Jesus is traveling through the city, he stops and he talks to this man, Zacchaeus. It really would have been scandalous. I mean, for, for Jesus to go to him, this man who was despised in the city, it's a little wonder that people began to grumble all around him. And why is Jesus talking to him? Doesn't he know who he is? Out of all the people in Jericho, why would Jesus ask to go and be the guest of this man? And this is what the crowds would do to some of the things that Jesus did. And this is what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they grumbled at the actions of Christ because they, they weren't familiar with just how loving and just how gracious and just how merciful he was. Luke 7.37 says this. It says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Think about that. Jesus was considered not just an associate, not just an acquaintance. He was considered a friend of sinners. You see, going to someone's house, and having to deal with them. Sure, it's much more significant than it does in our day. You know, we might have to turn over, that's a good thing. Maybe it shows some kind of level of, of, of friendship, but, but, but in the first century, uh, it carried so much more weight to, to, to uh, communicate the intimacy of the friendship, uh, just how far someone was willing to go to associate with that person. So as Donna shared in her testimony, Jesus came not for the, for the righteous, not for those that, that think they have it all together. He came for those who are sick, who need him, who see their needs. 
So as Jesus is interacting with Zacchaeus, we learn that as coming just because he loved a little bit, he would spend time with, with tax collectors and prostitutes and people like them because he knew that they probably saw their need for God. They could see just how far they were from his grace. And so he came to bring his grace and love to so the love of God, consider this, the love of God is so outrageous, is so scandalous, that it kind of knocks us off balance, right? It exceeds our expectations. When you look around the city of, of Boston, are, is there anyone that, that you work with, that you pass in the streets, that in your mind, even if you know you've read Luke 19 before, you've read it today, and God loves everyone, but is there anyone that you kind of look at and you say, well, they're, they're beyond the reach of how could God love them? They would never change. They would never uh, really see who Christ is and what he has done. And listen, there's, there's no one in this city, in the great city of Boston, that, that God does not love, that he does not call us to go and love and meet them right where they are. So Jesus' mission of reversal, which is a mission of grace, number one, six people where they are. And then number two, Jesus seeks us when we are not seeking him. Look, look at the story again. It says that, that Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was in the city. And because of the divine teaching of Christ, and because of the miraculous works of Christ, even though we saw last week on Easter Sunday, the people were just pressing in on him. And so this created a challenge for Zacchaeus because, number one, there were so many people who didn't get to Jesus, but then number two, he was such a short man that, that he couldn't even see where he is, so he knew uh, the way that Jesus was heading. And so he runs ahead. And this would have been uh, an unfamiliar practice for a rich man of prominence to run anywhere and humble himself before other people. But not does he run ahead, he actually climbs up in a tree. I mean, what a crazy idea just to see Jesus. He was curious to see this. He had a desire to, to know who Christ was and what he was all about. So as, he, as he's up in this tree, Jesus passes by, and Jesus initiates with him. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down. I need to spend time with you today. I need to be a guest in your home. And so the irony of the story is this. The one who seems to be seeking Jesus is really being sought by Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus seeks us. He takes the first step toward us. Zacchaeus probably had a measure of spiritual curiosity. He was probably curious. Hey, who is Jesus? What is he all about? But, but God was clearly at, at work in his life. Whether he had just heard of Jesus, maybe that's why you're here today. You've heard a little bit about Christianity and the gospel, but you want to learn more. Maybe that's you. Maybe for Zacchaeus, I mean, look at themselves. Maybe for Zacchaeus, he had, he had spent so many years gathering so much money for himself, and he said, like, you know what? Yeah, this really does not satisfy. So maybe he was curious to see, you know what? I, I'm not fulfilled in my life. And so maybe these other people who have met Jesus and seem to be so different, maybe he really does have the solution that I'm looking for. So perhaps his, his curiosity was, was sparked by a spiritual thirst, a spiritual hunger. 
Maybe that's you here this morning. You've tried a lot of things in life. You've been pretty successful. You have great friends. You, you, you're moving up in your workplace. Uh, whatever the case may be for you, and yet you see that, that ultimately it's still not bringing what you're looking for. One theologian says this about curiosity. He says, curiosity is a sort of preparation for faith. Maybe that you, you're curious, and so your curiosity is, is hopefully going to lead you to this place where you see that in Jesus you find the solution. Jesus sees out Zacchaeus. And if we look at the larger story of this, this is so huge. Jesus is actually passing through Jericho because where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. What would happen in Jerusalem? Just a few hours later, he would ride down into the city, what we call the China Frontier. It was celebrating on Palm Sunday. And it would be there that Jesus would not just seek Zacchaeus, but he would seek the salvation of all people through his death on the cross. Doesn't that carry some weight? Because he thought Jesus was about to go and give his life as a ransom for many, he was going to die. And yet, he cares so much about this, this man's ideas that he would stop, that he would have better life, that he would bring him the good of salvation. So Jesus is the ultimate seeker in this story. Yes, Zacchaeus was curious, but, but it was Jesus who was pursuing him, and God still pursues people today. He is the one who initiates his grace to us. His mission is a mission. So, so let's pause and think about this. What, what should this uh, move us toward on our fourth anniversary as a church? See, it's this. In, in light of our four years of grace as a church, we should live each day with humble gratitude and amazement. Humble gratitude and amazement. I mean, grace should always move us toward humility. We recognize that if we didn't come up with this ourselves, we didn't manufacture it ourselves, but that God has brought it to us as a gift. Just yesterday I was reading in my, my daily Bible reading, my first Corinthians 4 7, and just asked a simple question For what do you have that you have not received? And Paul's rhetorical question, it, it, the answer is nothing. There's nothing that we have in our life individually or as a church that we have not received as a gift from God. So, so as we reflect on what God has done in the life of our church, we have to look to God and say, God, you're the one who has done this. And it, it should move us to humility, but it also should move us to gratitude. Hopefully a characteristic of your life. Hopefully, a characteristic of the life of our church is one that we would pause and we would recognize all that we have to be thankful for. And we would go back to God and say, God, I can't believe what you have done for me. I'm so grateful for how you have changed my life. Consider this humility and gratitude are the natural result of being confronted with something that is so much greater than we could have Think about that. I think that's good. Humility and gratitude are the natural result of, 
of encountering something, receiving something that is so much greater than we could imagine. If someone comes up and gives you a penny and says, man, have a nice day, go buy yourself a drink. I mean, is anyone like, is anyone blown away by that? What if they give you a hundred dollars and say, go, go, go have a meal with your friends like that? Did you, did you deserve that? You deserve a penny. But what about the Benjamin accounts? You're like, wow. We're overcome. We didn't expect that. We're amazed. And so this is what the gospel should do for us. It should cause a sense of wonder and amazement that God has brought us to us in the life and death and the resurrection of Christ. And, and being amazed by this glorious picture then moves us to humility and gratitude and amazing. I pray that will be the case for us as a church moving forward here in Greater Boston. So, so not only should we revel in this, not only should we take great delight and pleasure in what God has done in this mission of grace, but number two, we should respond in the power of Jesus' mission of transformation. Look back at verses 8 and 10. Zacchaeus speaks up, even amidst the grumbling of the crowd, and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So when looking at this one life, Yes, we see a couple of truths about God's salvation. This the salvation rescue mission that Jesus put on. Okay, so number one, salvation always comes through faith in Jesus. We see that Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. What this means is he was not simply a physical descendant of Abraham, but he shared the faith of Abraham in God that, that made Zacchaeus righteous in God's sight. The son would say that salvation had come to him. This, this faith that Zacchaeus placed in Christ moved him from being spiritually lost to spiritually found. Neither his vocation nor his simple practices revoke his opportunity for God's salvation. And we can say, in fact, this is precisely who God loves to save are people, again, that, that don't have it all together, and that their, their life is a little rough, a little messy. God loves to bring this salvation to people like Zacchaeus. So if you remember, we said that this story is so closely uh, tied to the previous chapter, when Jesus meets this man who is just known as the rich young ruler. He had, he had a lot of money, a lot of power, and, and so he came to Jesus wanting to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. That's what he was story. And, and, and Jesus said, well, have you kept the commandments? And he says, yeah, yeah, I've tried to do that. I've done that pretty well. And so Jesus kind of lets him off the hook. He doesn't interrogate him. How many times he probably failed to keep the commandments like we all have. But he just said this. He said, well, one thing you lack. You need to take your possessions. You need to take all of them. You need to go and sell it to the poor. And what happened to the rich young ruler? He, he walked away sad and dejected because he was a man of great wealth. And so Jesus then, in, in, in verse 25 of 
Luke 18 says this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said this, then who can be saved? But Jesus said this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So what do we have in the story of Zacchaeus? Exhibit A. Case study number one. A rich man, a tax collector. Wait, I thought it was impossible. I thought it seemed impossible. Can a camel, a large animal, be threaded through the eye of a little needle used for sewing? Absolutely not. This is an impossibility. And yet, Jesus says, look, what, what you think is impossible, God makes possible. God saves people just like this. So listen, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. There is not one person that you know who is beyond the reach of God's grace. That you say, you you don't know my husband, you don't know my friend, you don't know my, my co-workers what they're doing on the weekends. Man, they want nothing with God. All they do is make fun of, of, of God and Christians. Listen, I would just say this. You don't know my God. Come on. If, if, if that's your attitude, then you don't know them. Say, like, you probably don't know Christ. Like, you need to know Christ because God can save anyone. We should talk about this, right? Ephesians 3. Like, now that was able to do far, far more than all we ask for. See, we, we want to take those people that we think would never step foot in religion hell and, and, and receive the gospel. We want to put those people at the top of our prayer list. We want to pray for them. We want to share with them. We want to love them. We want to serve them. We want to not give up on them because God never gave up on us. Salvation always comes through faith. When you say, you know what, I'm going to be talking about being spiritually lost. I don't really feel lost. I'm talking about receiving salvation. What is it like to receive? And then just, just listen to the, to, to the hope of the gospel here in just a moment. You see, what Jesus does when, when he comes into our lives, uh, he speaks this, this word that we are all in the same boat. Okay. Every one of us is spiritually lost before God apart from His grace. So, so that's, that's you. That's all of us. We, we all are lost apart from the grace of God coming into our lives. The Bible talks about how that we are like sheep. And sheep are not smart animals. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. Why, why Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. Because what are sheep going to do if they are left to themselves? They're just going to wander away. They're going to wander away from the flock. And so what they need is the ultimate seeker, God to go after them and to bring them back. And that is exactly who we are in our hearts before God. There's not one of us who's who said, you know what, God, your way is perfect. I'm going to follow your ways every day of my life. No, we, we do our own thing, right? We go our own way. We make decisions that, that, that don't pay off in the end, but this wondering, this lostness brings great spiritual consequences. It separates us from God. So that's why he sent his son Jesus to do what we can never do, live a perfectly pleasing life before God. 
Jesus always obeyed the will of God. He always did what was right. But not only did Jesus do what we can never do ourselves, he also did what we would never want to do. And that was die on the cross for our sin. The penalty of our sin is death. It's not just physical death, but it's spiritual death and separation before God. And so what Jesus did on the cross, you see a cross on the Plastered on the, the, the outside of churches, but, but what does it, it all mean? The cross was the, the place where Jesus took our sins. He was our subject. The judgment that we deserve fell on him. The penalty for our sin fell on him. So that now, through faith in him, trusting what he did, we can receive this salvation. So I just want to ask you. Have you received the salvation that Jesus offered to you? If you have not put both feet in, like we talked about last week on Easter Sunday, if you have not just said, yeah, I believe that Jesus lived and that he really died, even that he rose again, that's not enough. We have to take our heart and put both feet in on what he's done. Trust in the word of Jesus on our way. That's what it takes. The salvation always comes through faith. And then, and then here's the second we see in that case, okay? Jesus not only leads us where we are, but he then refuses to leave us that way. Salvation always brings transformation. This is an absolutely radical change in the life of this man. Verse 8, he says, I'll take half of everything that I, that I own, and I will give it to the poor. Okay, so you just notice, Jesus didn't ask me to give everything away. It's not, it's not a one like Christian ruler, you gotta give it all away, Zacchaeus, you gotta give it away, you gotta give it away. But he was moved to give half of what belonged to him to those who needed it. And then he says this if I have defrauded anyone, and then basically saying, Yes, I have defrauded people, he said, I'm going to restore it fourfold. This was the maximum requirement of the law. He said, I'm gonna make it right. I'm gonna pay it back in the so what happens then in Zacchaeus' life is this. He goes from allowing money to be his functional savior. What he trusted, where he found his identity, what comforted him, what fulfilled him, and gave him ultimate satisfaction. He went from finding all of those things in money, and he allowed Jesus to take their place. And now Jesus becomes his motivation to live. Jesus becomes his ultimate identity source of satisfaction and comfort and hope and love. And when Jesus does that, when Jesus becomes everything to us, he will radically change our life from the inside. He brings transformation, the transformation that we need. So again, on our fourth anniversary, we look back with humility and gratitude and amazement. That's what we want to do on one hand, but we also want to move forward being fully committed to Jesus' transforming power in us and his moral vision for us. Just think about, just think about your life. Are you, are you, you experience who Christ is at the point that you say, I'm fully committed to his transformation work in me? I love the potential as we think about 
in the door of the to Christ. What happens when Jesus transforms our lives and we start to love people like we didn't love them in the past? The light of Christ starts to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. Right? And as his light shines brighter through us, it becomes more attractive and compelling to those around us. What happens when we sacrificially serve those around us? The light of Christ shines brighter and brighter. What happens when we sacrifice some, some items on our calendar out of our busy lives and we spend that time for the sake of, of showing acts of kindness to those around us? The light of Christ becomes more attractive and compelling. So I want you to think about where Zacchaeus is here. His, his need was to take what he had and be generous to other people. And I, I intentionally chose this story on the one hand because look, God is doing a great work in this church. He is, he is bringing growth, He is calling more and more people to choose to follow Christ and connect with us. And so, why, why is that a good thing? It's not a good thing because God loves all the people who experience it, but as we grow as a church, more generous and give more and more away, more people in God's mission, sending them out, giving of our resources, our time, our, our, our finances. So I hope that generosity will warm our life individually and as a church, but, but it even goes further than that. Right? If, if generosity was Zacchaeus' greatest need, then we could just pause and say, okay, what's my greatest need? Where do we need God to change my life? radical way to do it. And whatever that is, I'm just telling you, God has the power to do that in your heart. No matter what it is, no matter, no matter what kind of uh, characteristic you need to put on that looks like Christ, um, God wants to do this work of transformation. Your life is Have you 
Just as Zacchaeus explains, Lord, we have your eye on each one of us. You know, right where we are, you want to meet us right where we are. So, Father, I pray that for anyone who is considering placing their full faith in Christ, we become fully Father, and I pray that you show them how, how rich a treasure it is. God, I pray that you would show that there is no way that this could make ever make better life than to come to follow Jesus. And Father, I pray for, for us as a church, every single person that here today, Lord, that you would make us more uh, grateful, uh, more humble, that you would amaze us with, with the links of your love. And that out of, out of an understanding of how great your love is, that we would continue to be transformed by your love, day by day, that we would join you on your mission of nature. So, Father, would you work these things in our spirit? Lord, we want to be a church that presses on, shining light, brighter and brighter in this city. So, God, would you do only what you can do?
Our staff will pray for you as God continues to draw you to himself. Now, you cannot read this morning's scripture and not realize the great impact that encountering Jesus had on Zacchaeus and the way that he handled his money. So, of course, during an opportunity to talk about the offering, it makes a lot of sense to just point that out and say, you know what? Here's what's interesting about that. Zacchaeus did not try to clean up his act before encountering Christ so he could make himself a little bit more acceptable to God. He actually encountered Jesus, and that encounter changed the way that he even perceived who his God was. And so as a church, when we take up an offering, it's not to try and make ourselves more presentable to God. It's actually in response to the grace that he's given to us. I love what Tanner shared, that this morning when we take up this offering, it's not that we have to give, it's that we can give. And so let's just bow our heads and pray accordingly. Father, Father, we, we, we revel in the reversal that Jesus' mission of grace brought. And so we thank you that you seek all people in us, right where we are. And we thank you that you even seek us when seeking you wasn't even a thought. So we ask that you receive our gifts as a sign of just humble gratitude total amazement. Lord, help us as we respond in the power of Jesus' mission to transform. In Zacchaeus, like we learned this morning, case study number one, through faith in you, but also in transformation, like that same Zacchaeus, case study number one.